Well, hello, it's Pastor Carson from Calvary Tabernacle. Thanks for stopping by the podcast. We hope that it's a blessing to you, whether you're catching one of the Sunday or Wednesday messages, or maybe you're jumping on to listen to one of the Saturday snapshots. We're doing everything we can right here in the beautiful Fountain Square area of Indianapolis to try to reach and connect and disciple people towards Jesus Christ. Enjoy what you listen to, and I hope that it's a benefit to your life. The third lesson in the book of James in chapter 3 and 4. Now, I hesitate to share this little story with you because getting into the text, we're going to see that James is dealing with some envy and some jealousy, but this was a really funny story, and it was embarrassing to me, and the only way it could be more embarrassing is if I share it with all of you, and so I might as well go all in. Um, I drive a 2013 Prius, and, and the jealousy's already sitting in. I, I, can, I can feel it. Lord, help this crowd. And uh, it has some unique uh, functions to the car that are specific for a Prius, and one of them is this power button. And it's really a power button. Like if you've ever thought about having a race car where you can flip a switch and click the nitrous and you're like, Poof. that's what you envision or that's what I envisioned when they told me about the power button. And so in my car, you push the power button. There's a lot of people in here probably with Priuses that are like, don't point me out. Don't point me out. I know some of you by name. I'm about to do it. I'm refraining right now. But the power button, when you push the power button, it gives the car extra torque like just extra speed. So when you press the power button on my Prius, it takes it from Prius speed right about to that of a Corolla. (laughs) I drive with that button on all the time, forget it's even there. But today I got in the car and I was coming to church and I spaced the fact that uh, I didn't have that button on and I got to the intersection there on Virginia coming off of the highway, and it's hard to see sometimes, and I wanted to make the turn, and this car came fast, and so I looked down, realized the power button wasn't on, pushed the button, and smashed the gas, and the car just barely, barely moved, and I panicked for a minute, and I looked around, and and then I looked down, and I realized I hit the eco button, (laughs) which, which takes the mighty powerful Prius down to like a moped, (laughs) so I had never used that button before because I had no need to ever use it. And today I found out that uh, there's absolutely no reason to have that function on the car. <laughs> oh, good times. Good. T- Thank you for sharing that moment with me. It, it makes me feel more comfortable to know that I'm not alone. I've shared it. I've cut it off my chest. I can move on. So the book of James, we're looking at chapter three and chapter four. This is the third part in our series And James, if you recall, he wrote the letter to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. Um, So he's writing the letter to Jews. This is interesting to me when I look at James because I love his practicality. Like he teaches a spiritual lesson and then he shows you immediately how you need to apply that into your life, the application of it. Um, And so I love his teaching style. I love the fact that he's very direct Um, All of those things about him, but I question some of that when I put it in perspective with who he's speaking to. Because he's talking to folks who are scattered abroad, and the primary reason 
why they're scattered abroad was persecution. And so these are people that were Jews, so they have converted from Judaism to Christianity. That shows a step of faith right there. And they held to that faith so strong that when persecution rose up, they didn't denounce Christ. They allowed themselves to be pushed out of their homes, out of their cities, and out of their towns. So to me, it seems like these are people who are committed to the gospel, right? These are Christians, people who are not giving in. They're willing to fight the good fight of faith. But if you've been sitting in here for the first two lessons, then you've realized, man, it doesn't sound like James is talking to Christians. It almost appears like it would be a message better suited for those who have not yet committed their life to him, right? Because he's pretty strong in his language. Well, that continues into chapter 3 and into chapter 4. So as we're listening to James break the word for us tonight, I want us to keep that in mind. I look around this place and I see devout Christians. I see faithful people who were here when I was just getting into church and, and were so encouraging to me. And, and most of you don't even realize it as I watched you while I was trying to figure out how I was supposed to do this Christian thing. I didn't quite figure it out yet and I was trying to. And half the people in this room, I drew things from you as I watched you worship or I watched you pray. And I learned, okay, that's how I do that. That's how my walk with God should look. And so I admire and, and admonish everyone in this room, but even as Christians that are strong in our faith, this letter was written to a group that would probably be much like us. They were committed and they were strong. So it is my belief that we can take something from the strong teaching that James has and apply it to our lives tonight and it will help us continue to mature in Christ. Chapter 3. He says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. He is not speaking against becoming a teacher, although he is talking more to the profession of a teacher, somebody who's in a role of a leadership, what they would call a rabbi um, in that day, in that age. And he's warning against clamoring for that position without carefully weighing the cost, without understanding that when you rise up to a place where people are looking to you and, and admiring you, yes, you're getting the, the praise of the crowd, and yes, you're getting people that are entrusting their lives to you and coming to you for guidance and for counsel, but along with that comes a standard and accountability that we are trusting you to give yourself wholly to the people and wholly to the work of God, staying true and staying focused on what God has called you to do. So before considering accepting that position before considering uh, that being a calling on your life and doing it without carefully praying about it, know that we will be judged in a more strict manager. It's, it's, it's what's going to happen. And I realize as we look around the room here, if I ask you to raise your hand, if you feel called to, to teach or called to preach, there wouldn't be a ton of us in here. We're all kind of in a place in life where we're doing what God has called us to up until this point at an age where we've made our mind up, we've made the decisions. Um, some of us are in careers, some of us are in ministry, some of us are bivocational. So I realize it would be a small group with the youth being downstairs, the young adults being upstairs if we, if we asked and pulled this crowd 
probably not a ton of people that we would be surprised have a calling to preach or teach on their life. I get that. But this is good news to all of those who don't. Because when you're entrusting your life to the teaching of the man or the woman of God, we can rest assured that God is holding them to a standard. He's expecting them to be preachers of truth, to be lovers of people, to be those who will go forth and stand strong on the word of God and give everything they got with every bone and fiber in their body. So we trust in that when we look to our teachers. We trust in that when we look to our pastors. And we can rest assured that God expects that of them. He goes on to say that we all stumble in many things. Or he recorded it in verse 2, for in many things we offend all. But he's saying to them that we do make mistakes. And he says it, we. He includes himself. As a teacher and as a preacher of the gospel, James is saying, while you're considering this profession, while you're considering this calling, know that we just as people are prone to fall. As people, we are prone to make mistakes. We're not perfect. We're living in a pursuit of sinlessness, but it will not be achieved until we're called from this earth into heaven. As long as we're here on earth, we're not going to be able to reach that perfect place where we'll never make another mistake. We will never commit another, uh, say another bad thing or, or discourage someone by our actions because we're human. But that is no excuse for us to not continue maturing. Because here in this life, that is what it's about. We continue to mature in Christ. We grow in him each and every day. We grow closer to him in prayer, closer to him in studying of his word, closer to him in fellowshipping with other believers. It is our position in Christ to continue to mature. When he comes back for us, he's going to be looking for our trajectory. And I want to be on a path where I'm heading closer and closer to him where he can look at Juan Lopez and say, hey, I realize you're not perfect. I realize you don't have it all together. You're not, you're not arriving at that place yet, but you're heading that direction. That's where we're going. We're maturing in Christ daily. He goes on and he starts to talk about this weapon. He talks about this weapon that can absolutely destroy a person's life. A weapon that can be used to take someone out who had every promising attribute and characteristic about them. And if this weapon is used, um, not as it's intended to, but in a, it can be something that will wipe them out. Completely take away everything that was promised to them if it's used in a manner that it was not designed to be used. He's talking about our tongue. He says that in... Verse 3, behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. A small bit in the mouth controls a strong horse. A small rudder turns a large ship. The control, the power of this, this small piece of equipment is being compared to how small the tongue is, but the power and the force that comes with it. Even so, if we can get control of our tongue, then we are able to gain control over ourselves. 
In verse 2, whosoever can control the tongue can bridle the whole body. The bit and the rudder are small, but they are extremely important. If they are not controlled, the entire horse is out of control and the ship is out of control also. Our tongue, James is coming back to this place where our tongue and our communication and the things that we say has such a power that it can control everything else about our body. But if we can't get control of it, then it goes wild. If we don't control our tongue, then it can cause a lot of damage. It can cause a lot of harm. Imagine a horse that doesn't have the bit in its mouth and someone at the reins. The horse just runs wild. But when we can put it in its proper position and we can get the right person holding the reins, then we can take that small bit and we can direct that massive animal exactly where we want it to go. And if we can get control of our language, of our speech, of our tongue, then everything else will follow. This is important to discuss because when we're thinking about Christianity and church, it is so much easier for us to say things than it is for us to do things, right? It's that way in life, easier said than done. I can say that I'm going to lose 10 pounds in, in two weeks, and that part was really easy. But then when I go to get it and I'm trying to make it happen, that's when the real work starts. So it's much easier for me to say it than it is for me to do it. And as Christians, it's so much easier for the enemy to get a hold of us and lead us to believe that there are certain things that are okay because we're not doing other things. Look at it this way. It's much easier for me to destroy somebody with my tongue than it is for me to physically put my hands on them and hurt them, right? I, I can look around this room and well, let me just do this. I can think of myself and, and I'm not going to approach somebody and just grab them and, and try to physically harm them. But I know that I've been guilty many times in the past of saying things that are just as destructive with my language about that person. That's why I believe James is really hitting home with this lesson with this church, with the, with the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. Because he wants them to understand that you need to get control of this. You need to mature. This is a place the enemy finds room to destroy the church. This is where he gets in and destroys the unity because it doesn't look so bad, right? If I walked up and punched somebody right now, everyone would be like, whoa. Several people would run after me. In this church, nine people would draw their gun. <laughs> we know it's wrong, right? In no, in no context are you going to say that Brother Lopez was okay to walk up and punch that individual. However, how much different is it when I'm sitting in a circle and I'm destroying somebody's reputation with my speech and everyone around sits there and listens without anything to say? Right? Let's face it. It's easier to be in that position and not step up and do anything about it. Just like it's easier for me to be in that position and say those things because I don't have to deal with that person face to face. Brother Jones is over here. There's no way. No way. No reason ever I would think to approach him and attack him. He was a college athlete, a high school athlete, 
He is skilled in sports. He's just beyond me. He's a beast of a man. He seems really cute and quiet. That's right, because Sister Chloe's got him on a short leash. Thank you, sis. But I would never approach him and try to harm him physically with my hands. It just would not be something that crossed my mind. But let's face it. It's way easier for me to say something about him damaging to his reputation or something about him that may not be true or just pick him apart behind his back. That's why James is saying, get a hold of this because it's easier for the enemy to infiltrate the church this way than it is other ways. So let's focus on it and let's recognize it. Not so that we can feel like we're pitiful, not so that we can feel like we're poor Christians, but so that we can course correct. When we know that the enemy is approaching us in a certain way and we know that we're failing in a specific manner, then we can fix it. And God brings forgiveness and grace. Thank you, Jesus. The third illustration he uses, James says, a single spark can destroy an entire forest. How great a matter a little fire kindleth. Does anybody remember the marketing campaign from Smokey the Bear? Oh, you're making me feel old. Don't act like that. Raise your hand if you remember Smokey the Bear. Thank you. You guys you should have seen your faces. You purposefully wanted me to feel like I was the only guy. Okay, now who remembers what he said? Only you can prevent forest fires. And Smokey, I went back and watched some of those videos. I was going to play one tonight, but they're awful. (laughs) The the quality of those videos, man, wow, we've come a long way. So Smokey did a great job of making sure that everybody understood that you can cause a fire in a forest on purpose. You can pour gasoline out. You can light it, and it will blaze, and the forest will be destroyed because you did so. Or you could just be the person that didn't properly extinguish the fire you had made. Like you thoroughly cared about making sure that you didn't start a fire in the forest and you poured water on your fire and then you went back into your tent, but you just didn't do a good enough job and it rekindled and it started a fire and that same effect took place. The forest would be destroyed. Whether it was on purpose, intentional, or maybe it was unintentional, the consequences are still the same. Smokey the Bear taught us one thing. You need to respect fire. It's not something that we play with because it can cause great harm when it's not used with very careful care. And that's what James is saying to us about our tongue. He's saying you need to understand and respect the power that is within your tongue because you may say something unintentionally Something like a casual, sarcastic, or critical remark, but it can inflict a lasting injury on somebody's life for years to come. Who's ever had somebody say something to you and it stuck with you for a long time? Who in this room still remembers to this day, word for word, what was said to you when they made a look? Look, I know. I know. 
It sticks with us. That's why James is wanting us to catch on to this, that, that even if it's unintentional, we have to be careful. We have to know that our tongue can be used, that the enemy would deceive us and allow us to use our tongue and our words to destroy somebody that makes an impact that goes past just meeting them for a moment. For just a moment, like it's one thing in passing and we didn't even necessarily mean it, but that person carries it with them for weeks, months, or years. The impact we can make on somebody when we're not being careful with what we say. However, like every powerful weapon, it can be used for evil or it can be used for good. We get to choose what we say. We get to choose our speech. We get to choose how we speak to other people. It's up to us. A well-timed encouragement or compliment can inspire someone for the rest of their lives. Let's do the same thing. Who remembers something that someone told you that has encouraged you and inspired you for years? Right? Yes. And so we get to choose. That's the beauty of why James is bringing this up. That's why we would talk about the text in this setting around a bunch of great Holy Ghost-filled, apostolic, born-again believers because we need to know that we have a choice in the matter. That if we use our words wisely and we choose them appropriately, we don't have to ruin somebody's life. We can build somebody up. We could speak life into somebody who might be at this church for their very first time and just a handshake and saying, hey, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming to Calvary Tabernacle. What's your name? My name is Juan. Oh, I hope to see you again. The impact that that can make on somebody's life. We can choose what we say. So I say we use words that encourage I say we use words that build up. I say we use our voice to look somebody in the face and speak to them and let them know that there is still hope. I say we look people in the face that are dealing with drug addictions and alcohol addictions and we tell them that God can still deliver. I say we look at somebody that's coming home that's been gone for years and they're trying to make their way back to God and we tell them, listen, in this place, you are welcome. God still loves you. Right? That's what we use our words for. We use our words to encourage somebody and to build them up, not to tear them down. No man can tame the tongue. No man can tame the tongue. But what man cannot do, God can. He can. Let's not place ourselves so high and mighty where we're like, that would never be me. Not my lips. These lips is pure. I would never say something like that. I would never talk about somebody behind their back. I would never feel pressured to say a joke that was a little bit off collar when I'm at work with nobody around me from church. I could never be me. Let's not put ourselves in that position because it could be any one of us. We could end up there at some point, at some time, and not even realize that we've allowed something to influence us. And before we know it, we're talking just like that. But what we can do is we can yield ourselves to the Holy Ghost and we can say, God, I want you to control my speech. I want to yield myself to you so that the words that come out of my mouth are encouraging and edifying and building up and not tearing down. We need the Holy Ghost. 
So James is telling us that if you want to be able to be someone that can control your tongue, then you're going to need the Spirit of God on your side because you cannot do it on your own. Here's a pause, something that I find amazing since we're talking about this. God could have chosen anything, anything. He could have picked any sign he wanted to pick to show humanity that they have been filled with the baptism of his spirit, with the promise of his spirit. And what did he choose? He chose to take control of the one piece of your body that you could not control on your own. How mighty and powerful is that? No, I didn't get to see the Red Sea part. I didn't get to see the walls of Jericho fall, but I stood right there when Almighty God took control of my tongue and began to speak in a language that I did not know. And it seems odd or it seems strange until you think about the fact that God knows that this is part of our body that we cannot control on our own. And he wants us to be for certain that we have been filled with his spirit and that his promise has entered our life. And so he takes control of that one unruly member. And where that member could be used for harm and damaging, he uses it in this heavenly language as a sign unto us. Who are we? Who are we that he would do that? But yet he does it for us. Verse 12 gets to the root of the matter. It says, Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs, so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh? He's saying that the tongue reveals its source, which is our heart. So if there was any question up until this point, James, why are you making such a big deal about a little bit of speech? We all say things that we don't really mean and we all spout off every now and again. James is making a big deal of it because the, the speech that we're speaking is just one symbol of what's going on inside of our hearts. And man, if our hearts aren't right, if our hearts aren't fixed on what they should be on, then we're in danger of hellfire. And James doesn't want us to be there. He wants us to make it. And so he took these steps in progressing with the, the uh, 12 tribes and teaching them on this lesson. And just to get them to the place, okay, you know that you've got to guard your speech. You know it's important. You know it's powerful. You know that you can choose to use it for good or to use it for evil. And now I want you to understand why I'm making it such a big deal. Your soul depends on it. Because whatever we're saying is coming from our hearts. God wants us to have a pure heart. That's why the person that gets control of their tongue can bridle the whole body because if they have control of their tongue, they've got their heart purified and cleansed. That's why the whole body is impacted by it. James is shifting now um, in verses 13 through 18, talking about heavenly and earthly wisdom. Two characteristics of earthly wisdom are envy and self-seeking. Both seek to destroy others while building up one's self. One of the greatest goals of a Christian is to build up and edify others. 
So we're making our progression through this lesson, and now we're in a place where, where James is dealing with, okay, we've talked about the speech, we've talked about it stemming from your heart, and now we need to talk about the wisdom. Like, what are you thinking when you're going through life and what you're doing? And he explains to, to his, uh, those recipients of this letter, he's explaining to them that there is wisdom that is good, and there is wisdom that is not so good. And how do you tell the difference? When it's heavenly wisdom, it follows after everything else that we know about God. If it's wisdom that's contradicting what we already know about God, then we know it's not heavenly wisdom and it's not from him. And he uses examples to talk about if, if somebody is feeling like they're being led by God, but it's all about them and it's self-serving, then that is not of God. Because God has created us as his body to be a church that goes out and ministers, edifies, and builds others up. And so that is one litmus test we can do to say, okay, God, I'm, 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 I'm feeling your direction. I'm feeling your leading in the spirit. Is this you? It's important because oftentimes we go down this path when God is wanting us to go down this path. And this path is a lot rockier. It's a lot harder to make through. And Lord willing, we wake up on that bumpy road and get back on course where we're supposed to be. But if we can avoid that by first filtering it through, does it line up with everything else I know that God expects of me and wants of me? Is it for my own personal gain? Or is it for me being able to benefit and edify others? Listen, God's not upset, nor does he want people to withhold from pursuing great careers and earning great potential of wealth. All of that is fine. But you find the Christian who's been blessed financially and you talk to them, someone that really has a heart for God, and you talk to them and they're going to tell you within that conversation that they are thankful for the blessings of the Lord because they are able to be a blessing to so many people that otherwise they could never have done, could never have done. That's the difference between a, a God leading you and you leading you when it's all about tearing down our barns and building bigger barns so that we can store more stuff for ourselves. God wants us to operate in his wisdom and not our own wisdom. We're gonna move into chapter four. Quickly here. Now James is going to talk about the reasons for strife in the church. Now this is good, right? Because as he points out why there's strife in the church, it gives all recipients of this letter the opportunity to course correct and fix those things. And so he says to them, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because you ask not. Ye ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. The reason for strife in the church is lust. It's the personal passions, not a sexual lust, but a desire for things that are self-gratifying, for things that are meant to only please us, the things that we want and not the things that God wants for us. That's the culprit. Uncontrolled passions and desires in the heart of individuals are the source of every evil act that has ever taken place. They fight, they kill, they envy, they covet. 
all of this taken place and they find themselves left without obtaining what it is that they hoped that they would obtain. Still feeling empty, still feeling angry, still feeling upset. We do not find fulfillment in those things. As long as we're pursuing what we want, what pleases us, what makes us happy, then we can't pursue what God wants, what pleases Him, and what makes Him happy. And that causes strife amongst the brethren. When we envy one another, when we covet one another's belongings, and we don't get the things that we want because someone else has it, but it doesn't belong to us, it causes tension, it causes stress, it causes fighting. James isn't saying that people would kill or murder, but he's saying that the hate of someone that would kill or murder is present when we're arguing and bickering and fighting amongst ourselves. James is dealing with two problems here. The problem of no prayer, which blows me away, right? We know that if we pray according to the will of God, look, we know this. This is biblical. If we pray according and in alignment with the will of God, he answers those prayers. He answers them. And yet somehow the audience of James, he's telling them that, listen, your guys' problem is you're not praying. You're not even bringing the request to God who guaranteed you that if you bring something to him that's in his will, he will do it. And we're missing that opportunity and we're not even praying. That's problem number one. A prayerless people will always find themselves bickering and fighting amongst each other because there's nothing satisfying in a life that's disconnected from prayer and communication with God. The next problem is selfish prayer where they do pray, but they're praying and they're asking amiss. They're asking for things that God doesn't want them to have, not just things he doesn't want them to have, but things that no Christian ought to have. It's it's meeting their personal needs and their, their personal desires outside of the will of God for their life. Thousands of years have passed since Adam and Eve and we're dealing with the same problem. God created them. He put them in the garden. He gave them everything that they could ever want. And somehow the one thing he said that they could not have is what they desired the most. I know you think about it. I can't be the only one. It's aggravating. Every time I go out to do yard work, you think about, hmm, had they not messed up? Thorns, thistles, all this extra work that I'm having to put in here. My beautiful wife's inside in the AC while I'm out here in the, in the yard. I'm not even looking over there, but I got that out. I feel better, a little tougher. I better watch my tongue. God gave them everything that they could possibly want, and yet they partook of the one thing that they were not supposed to. And God is looking at us, and he's saying to us, everything that I desire for you, I'm willing to give you. 
Everything that could make your life become what I designed you to be, I want you to have. All you have to do is find alignment with me and ask of me those things that are according to my will. And yet somehow under that promise and knowing that we can have everything that God desires us to have, we find ourselves praying for the things that we ought not to have. How is that even possible? When God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, is promising us everything that we need. Everything. And yet we, born again Christians, can find ourselves over and over again at his feet asking for things that would cause destruction to our own lives. There was called separation in our relationship with him. And no, God's not going to honor those things. It's not his will that any should perish. He doesn't want separation from his people. But we, we have to find the place where we're willing to let God lead us. Where we're letting, we're letting God guide us. How do we get to the place where we're not wasting prayers on things that we should not have to begin with? We do it by getting back to the basics. Right, man, it's the blocking and the tackling of Christianity back to a life of prayer, a consistent prayer life, not one that comes before the throne when we need something from God, but one that comes before the throne day in and day out because we love being in his presence. A life that is disciplined to open this book on a regular basis and read from its pages the promises of God that stand true today the same as they did thousands of years ago when they were first penned. The encouragement to know that that's true. God wants us to just go back to the basics that got us to where we were to begin with. And when we do so, we position ourselves to be in better alignment with him to where he can guide us. Then when we pray, we're not trying to guess if it's according to our will or his will. We know because we've been seeking his face. We know because we've been in his word. We know because we've been having fellowship with his people. And all of those things build us up and prepare us so that when we go before God, we can go to the throne and we can pray for those things that he wants us to have. In verses four and five, there's a rebuke of compromise and covetousness among Christians. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Is that not the craziest statement? have to make to Christians? How basic is that statement to say, listen, guys, don't you understand that you cannot be in close relationship and friendship with the world that despises God and be in close relationship with the God they despise? Right? It's so foundational. It's so basic. But he's reminding them of that. And I would be remiss if I didn't remind our church of the same thing. We can't have both. We don't get to dip our toe into the benefits and the pleasures of the world while dipping our other toe into the benefits and the pleasure of a faithful and mighty God. We must make a choice. The beauty is we get to choose. 
I decide who I serve. No one else tells me who I'm going to serve. I get to make that decision on my own. Here's the great part. The spirit which he made to dwell in us jealously yearns for the entire devotion of our heart. The spirit will convict us if we find ourselves in a place of compromise. If we're careful and we'll listen and we'll pay attention, even though we get off course, even though we find ourselves doing things that we ought not do, the spirit will be there warring within us, trying to get our attention and get us back on course, fighting for us. What a loving God to save us and to deliver us. And then over and over again, when we get off the path to be speaking to us and, and yelling at us and flashing sirens to get our attention, to try to get us back on the course that we belong. Thank you for that, God. We don't deserve that. We walk away. We turn our back. We make the mistakes. And he's running for us. Thank you, Jesus. We go down here into verses 4, 6 through 10. It says, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. He says, but giveth more grace. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. When we humble ourselves before God, grace awaits us. It's so simple to say, but sometimes so hard to do, to admit our shortcomings, to admit our mistakes, to admit our flaws, and to humble ourselves before God, to truly humble ourselves before Him. The same Holy Spirit convicting us, convicting us of our compromises will also grant us that grace to serve God like we should. Submit to God, James says. Submit to God the devil only wins when we let him win. The devil has no power. James is clear with this. Resist the devil and he will flee. Resist him. Not he might flee, not he'll probably flee, but that if we resist the devil, he will flee. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. So what's that mean? That means that if we're dealing with some things that have been weighing us down for some time now, then we can make up our minds and say, devil, no more. No more power over me. No more authority over me. I resist that. We resist it and he flees. There's power in that. God is letting us know tonight that we don't have to be submissive to the enemy anymore. He doesn't Belong in our lives, controlling us, beating us up, directing us, messing with us. He doesn't belong there. We need to resist them. The devil has no power. Somebody remind themselves of that tonight. He's got no power. If you're getting beat up in the fight, it's only because you haven't stood up and resisted him yet. Because he's got no authority. He has no control. He doesn't get to do what he wants. If we say no, 
That's it. You have no place here, devil. That's where we need to say in our homes, I resist you, devil. We need to say in the life of our children, I resist you, devil. We need to say in our speech, I resist you, devil. There's no place for you in my life. No power, no authority. We resist you in Jesus' name. And he flees from you. Man, new believer and saved alike need to know and understand that, that there is power when we resist the enemy. It may feel like he's got us by the throat. It may feel like we're backed up into a corner. It may feel like we've got no hope and no way out. But God is telling us through the power of the Holy Ghost, if you resist, if you resist, he will flee. Thank you for it, Jesus. Amen. The solutions for strife. Stand with me tonight. The solutions for strife. Get right with God. Get right with God. The solutions for strife is not just about getting right with God, but it's also about getting right with other people. Do not speak evil of one another. Humbling ourselves and getting right with God must always result in getting right with others. Always results in getting right with others. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you so much for meeting us here tonight. Thank you for the encouragement that James brought us, God. Thank you for solidifying in our hearts and reminding us one more time, Jesus, that we do not have to be held captive by the enemy. God, that there is a way that we can fight against him and you have given us victory if we so desire it. Help us, God, in our times of prayer and communication with you to reach out and to long for the things that you have for our lives. We want to pray, God, according to your will. We want to pray big prayers that align with what you're wanting to do in our lives, God, because we want to see your will come to pass. We pray, God, for our church, that you would let our church be in proper alignment, continue to lead our pastors. He leads us, God, and continue to pour out your blessings upon this church. God, minister in our community, God. Touch the neighborhoods that are surrounding us, Lord. We're praying for victory, Jesus. We're praying for deliverance, God. We're praying that you go before us, that you soften the hearts of the people that we'll meet in neighborhoods, on our jobs, and family members that we've been talking to and witnessing to for years. God, let your will be done. In Jesus' name.